Stoker Festival in Dublin, Ireland, this is Fangs. On today's episode, Theatre and Literature. Over the series, we've been looking at the pop culture adaptations of Dracula over the past 120 years. But the interesting thing is that the very first adaptation of Bram Stoker's book was by Bram Stoker. Stoker absolutely knew that Dracula had the potential to be a success on stage. That's Stoker biographer David J. Scal. His own adaptation is a bit ungainly. Stoker's adaptation wasn't a hit. The next theatrical adaptation of Dracula would come in 1924 when Irish actor and playwright Hamilton Dean got permission to adapt it for the stage. When Hamilton Dean decided to adapt it, he realised there was just a lot that was not going to work on stage. I mean, he had a rather modest little touring repertory company. The novel Dracula is, you know, it's, it has great uh, sweep and scope, I mean, geographically. and But the, the biggest problem was Dracula himself who is a creature of the shadows, unlike all of our 20th century and, and more recent uh, 21st century Draculas. He's not a seductive figure. He does not ingratiate himself with the other characters. He had to become that kind of character simply to work in the context of a drawing room mystery melodrama. He had to become the kind of character who could plausibly enter you know, a middle-class drawing room and go about victimizing everybody he could. And this is where the the smarmy, suave uh, Transylvanian charm and all of that, the, the essentially the, the romantic conception of Dracula, you know, began here. For I'm a jazz vampire. Take a foot, take a foot, take a foot with me and dance, dance. Dancing is my specialty. Dean's play crossed the Atlantic in 1927, and for its US debut, it was rewritten by American playwright John L. Balderston. The role of Dracula would go to an unknown Hungarian actor by the name of Bela Lugosi. Dracula was a hit on Broadway. Theatre editor and critic for Time Out, Adam Feldman, says the producers of the play had some interesting ways of marketing it to audiences at the time. It's hard to separate out the salesmanship from the actual fear content involved. Certainly at the time it was promoted as a, a, a terrifying spectacle at which uh, women and children especially should be particularly careful. Well, they suggested in the script, I believe, that you advertise it as such, that you would have Red Cross representatives on hands and you would have beds available if people were to faint and that sort of thing, um, to faint from the horror of what they were going to be seeing on stage. And it's true to some extent that audiences at the time were more responsive to this kind of sensational theater. They weren't spoiled as we are on the editing and close-ups of film and television. So they were still a little bit more susceptible to, to stage effects. And of course, there's all these stories of 19th century theater where, uh, of melodramas where people would run on stage and attack the villain and that sort of thing. And here you have a similar effect. I think people were still able to be scared at the theater in ways that we probably have a hard time doing today. That Broadway production will be the one that future adaptations of Dracula would look to. That version of Dracula became 
the defining version for many years. Certainly the Todd Browning movie and its many imitators. But then even later when, when people came up with their own versions of Dracula, you often still have this this sense of elegance that becomes very important to the telling of this particular story. And when they revived this play, this 1920s play, on Broadway in the 1970s, they kept that elegance, they even heightened that elegance with a production that starred Frank Langella as Dracula, but also was really most distinguished by its design elements, which is a funny thing when you think about Dracula, because you think of blood and and horror. But by the 1970s, at least, it had become a bit tongue-in-cheek. The designer behind that production? Edward Gorey. If you haven't checked out the the work of Edward Gorey, I, I recommend that you do. He was really an extraordinary illustrator and wit. And he was most famous for these small books that he made on macabre themes, like the Gashley Crumb Tinies, which is an alphabet book using dead children to illustrate letters of the alphabet. <laughs> um, and he had a wonderful cross-hatched style of these very delicately drawn, very intricately drawn ink drawings. And this Dracula revival in the 70s actually came out of Gorey's work. It was designed as a, as a showcase for his work. And it debuted in the 70s, earlier in the 70s in Nantucket, because the producer there really wanted a version of Dracula as imagined by Edward Gorey. And so Gorey did the sets and the costumes, and there are all these amazing shades of gray with tiny details of red. So one one plot element here or there just to suggest that, that blood lurking behind this elegance. And in front of all these very witty cartoons of sets, you had the live flesh and blood actors led by Frank Langella. But it was it was all in the context of this sort of vision of cartoonish macabre nineteenth century horror. And not, by that time at least, trying to be actually, I think, scary. has a deep camp element, has a deep knowing arch element in it. It's very clever and it's very it's very removed. His work has a, a deep sense of elegant distance built into it. And so by the time you get to you know by the time you get to the seventies there's no way you can put a, an actually scary Dracula story on stage. People aren't going to be scared at it. The, the, the best you can hope for is a kind of a kind of chill factor. And the way that you can get into that chill factor in a weird sort of way is by acknowledging some of the limitations of the material. It's the way that musicals today now, for example, will often wink at their own musicalness. They will they will uh, put put things in quotation marks and they will be ironic about being a musical. The, the 1970s Dracula was ironic in a way about being a horror show. It treated horror theater as itself a bit of an antique object to be admired with a, a slight wink and a slight smile. And so the it's interesting to look back at those reviews for the, the 1977 Dracula on Broadway because they really do linger on the design much more than on the performances. Even Frank Langella, who was very well received in that role and won a Tony for it and then recreated it himself on film later in 1979 or 1980. Even Frank Langella in the New York Times review, it takes them, you know, the first half of the review before they even get to Frank Langella in the title role. 
Adam remembers a more recent off-Broadway revival of the play. I mean, you know, look, I, I like being a theatre critic, but you take a lot of bullets, you know, you take, you take a lot of stakes <laughs> through the heart. Yeah, a few years ago, they did try to do a, a Dracula revival off-Broadway. I think that the producers probably thought, well, Twilight is awfully popular, so <laughs> let's bring back the great vampire play. The problem is that this play is very creaky, very creaky 1920s playmanship. And, you know, in 1970. Seven, as we as we just talked about, they kind of got around this by doing the show in a roundabout way through the design and through the elegance of this witty design. In this last revival in 2000, whatever it was, 2014, they really tried to do it as, as straight up as they could. And it was a preposterous failure. <laughs> um, I mean, I, the Dracula was this Italian actor with this long, lank, dark wig sort of creeping around the stage like like a tired designer at main milan um <laughs> it uh norman mailer's son was in it playing renfield and just acting up a storm you know acting his face off in a small theater it didn't really come off great uh, the show i think lasted less than a week it closed before they could even publish the review memorable failure and but, but part of the problem there is again you know this is not a play that works on its own terms anymore you really have to come up with some way to frame it over the series we've looked at dracula adaptations across so many different mediums and it got me thinking what would happen if you'd been exposed to all these adaptations before you'd read the book um, my name is Emily Asher Perrin, and I'm the senior staff writer for Tor.com, which is a science fiction fantasy community website. Emily had this exact experience, and it really had an effect on her when she read Dracula for the very first time. I read it, I guess it's now about seven years ago. That was the first time that I read it, and it was, uh, it was on my reading list for a long, long, long time. And I finally decided I was going to do it. I ran into some interesting issues reading it because I sort of expected you know you have a lot of expectations you walk into Dracula you've been hearing about Dracula forever so when I did it I found that I, I came up against a couple weird walls that I wasn't expecting what are we talking about here when I decided I was going to do it obviously you know I I thought I was fine mainly because I had seen the Bella Lugosi old school universal Dracula you know their their old monster movie version and I figured well it can't be that different like it's going to have the same sort of slow pacing it's going to have the sort of the the wait and see kind of horror that you expect from like really good classic horror and also like I had experience reading Frankenstein and things like that so I was like I'll be fine with this and then I tried out I started the, the beginning of the book and it was just a long long trek with Jonathan Harker going through Romania and all the people staring at him and him being like something's up here (laughs) <laughs> Something strange. The atmosphere is strange. I'm so perturbed by how... And I was like, okay, this isn't... The pacing is not what I was expecting. <laughs> he just wanted to get to Dracula because I suppose that's the thing that we're kind of all exposed to and we're thinking of we're thinking of the character of Dracula. We're not thinking of any of the lead-up to it. Right, exactly. And even, even you know, there, there are some movies that have dealt with that. Like, I think even the, the Coppola version with, like, Keanu Reeves and all of that, it... It takes its time kind of getting there. But even then, it's still a movie. You're not spending hours and hours reading. You're, you're sort of going, okay, like I have to, I have to wait here with Keanu Reeves' vacant expression, but eventually I'm going to get there. <laughs> and then you get Gary Oldman playing Dracula. So you're like, oh, fine, we're good. We, we got here. We're, we're doing it. But it isn't, it's not quite the same 
like holding your breath till you get to the castle. You're reading journals and you're reading, you know, all these various entries from logs and stuff, and it just takes forever to get there. So, <laughs> so you're so you're trying to block all of this noise out, yes. these pop culture noise out when reading the book. So did it work? It didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I I tried so hard, I, but I think finally I got far enough into it. You know, by the time he gets on, because you get Jonathan Harker comes in and he encounters these like this trio of lady vampires, the sisters, and Dracula's like, oh, I'm going to leave you here with him, and I'm going to, with them, I'm going to get on a boat, and I'm going to go to England, and I'm going to do all this stuff. And I think that by the time you get far enough into it, eventually you're like, oh, I see, I see where it came from, but I don't really think that you can stop yourself from spending all your time reading the book going, okay, how does this relate to what I already know? What am I seeing? What it, what was pulled what did Anne Rice use? You know, what, what does television use? What do films use? You know, what did Stephanie Meyer use? Mm. And I think that it makes it, it's still enjoyable to do as a result because you're thinking about it on those terms. But the idea of reading Dracula, the original Dracula, unspoiled is kind of impossible. Emily Asher Perrin is the senior staff writer for Tor.com. That's T for Transylvania, O for, oh my God, it's Dracula! And or for Renfield.com. Well, now we've almost come full circle of Dracula's pop culture legacy. Dracul, the official prequel to Dracula, authorized by the Stoker estate, was written by Bram's great-grand-nephew, Dacre Stoker, and J.D. Barker. So who better to speak to than with Dacre himself? I started by asking him, when did he find out that he was related to the creator of Dracula? I was born and raised in Montreal, Canada, and I I remember as a 12-year-old boy around Halloween time, people would come joking to to the door. My friends would rib me and say, oh, are you going to give us candy or you're going to take our blood? You know, this is the Dracula family. And so, you know, for a little while it got a little irritating, but it was, you know, a little bit funny. But it really prompted me to ask my dad one day, you know, Dad, what's this all about? And he, he pulled a first edition of Dracula off the bookshelf and a couple other Bram's books, and, and he sat me down and explained how Bram Stoker's youngest brother, Dr. George Stoker's my great-grandfather, and, and his son, Tom, came to Montreal, Canada after World War One, and that's how the the Canadian branch of the Stoker started. I ended up marrying a, an American and, and moved to the southern part of the United States back in 1992, m- mostly to avoid the, the harsh Canadian winters. I got a little tired of them. It's really interesting legacy to grow up with. You know, I go to film festivals, literary festivals, and I get the sort of weird looks by people, and they say, "Well, is your house like the Munsters or the Adams family?" I say, "No, no, we're really very normal people. We just happen to be blessed with coming from a, a family of incredible literary legacy." In 2003, a screenwriter called Ian Holt contacted Dacre. Holt had been trying to get a film made of a direct sequel to Dracula, but wasn't having any luck. So he turned to Dacre with the idea of turning the screenplay into a novel. That was interesting. When I got this phone call from Ian Holt saying, Look, I've got a screenplay. I'd love to have a Stoker involved for authenticity. How do you feel about doing this? And I said, Well, let me, I've got to talk to the family first. Because, you know, it is, it is a big step. You, number one, representing 
the living relatives, the descendants, both indirect and direct of Bram Stoker by being, you know, the guy that, that uh, continues the story, especially having never written something before. So I didn't want to mess it up and I didn't want to just give the Stoker name away. So I told Ian I need about six months or so. I contacted other family members. Bram does have a couple of great-grandsons still alive, three at the time, but only two living now, to make sure that they were okay with this and also to, to find out what sort of information they had about Bram. What, what insight can they give me? Because what I wanted to do, Liam, was to, to include Bram in the story. Uh, I thought that would be quite cool, that the story takes place 25 years after Dracula ends and Bram is still alive. I wanted to have him as a character, so I needed to portray Bram accurately and interestingly and sort of give the world an idea of who Bram Stoker was and how I can you know, slide him into his own sequel, which is you know, sort of an interesting concept. And, and it was kind of daunting, but once I relaxed a little bit and just said, look, you're never going to be Bram Stoker. Don't try to be. We didn't write the story in the epistolary style. It was just too complicated for, for sort of first-time writers. And we just wrote it in, in a third-person narrative, and it was, you know, it's a lot of fun. It was Bram's style. We left our mark as an homage to Bram by doing things that, in his way and with his characters, the, the characters that stayed alive, or that managed to stay alive at the end of Dracula, to, to keep them going. And, and a, lot of his, a lot of the readers of Dracula really enjoyed it. Some people said, oh, you've changed things. How dare you do this? You know, and, and I realized, boy, I just can't, can't satisfy everybody, so I'm just not going to try and do too hard a, a job of worrying about that. But we will try and put a good product that the Stokers can be proud of. Dacre didn't really have any literary ambitions himself. He was a member of the Canadian men's pentathlon team and he coached the team in the 1988 Summer Olympics in South Korea. When this opportunity came up to write a Dracula sequel, though, he applied the skills he already had. Much like sport, you need to have thick skin and you need to push hard, figure out a system. But I've also was a teacher and I laid out, you know, what I thought how the book should be laid out from start to finish, just like you would a yearly plan. And that's sort of my strength is the or organization of, of many things, be it a, a class schedule or a sporting schedule. I did the same thing with the book, when things should happen and, and put out a master plan. And much like sport, you have coaches. And much like writing, you get editors to help you. And so Ian and I were not above getting good editors to help us along the way. And so I wrote what I could write. Sometimes it was outlines, sometimes it was strict text. Then I would send it back to Ian. He would do the same and we'd go back and forth. We sometimes chose different characters to be our voices. He was Dracula, I was Bram, he was Quincy, I would be Cotford and figure out what they'd be saying. So we kind of got into the characters ourselves in a very sort of basic way and, and wrote what we think they would be writing at certain stages of the story and then just kind of help weave the whole thing together. You know, it's, it's not exactly like sport, but it takes some of the same kind of process that sport would take, as well as endurance, because it was a long process and many do-overs and many re-edits based on what the editors were telling us to do. The experience would bring Dacre to Dublin in Ireland. I made my first trip there to the One City, One Book celebration in, in 2009, which was fantastic because I got to meet a lot of the people who were very interested in Bram in Dublin, scholars, collectors, other biographers like Paul Murray, got to meet the, the people in Dublin who you know, revered Bram as a, as a serious uh, writer. 
And that really sort of kindled a fire with, within me and the family to say, well, this is great. This is a good start. What else can we do to help recognize Bram? And, and uh, you know, when I look back at the accomplishments we've had, and, and one is, you know, convincing the, the Dublin City Council how nice it would be to have a proper festival around Halloween. Well, that's already started. How nice it would be at Dublin Castle to have a plaque outside the area where Bram worked. And now we've got a wonderful plaque that we, we helped him with the wording to go outside. We've been trying to get a statue of Bram somewhere, but so far we've, we've, we've managed to get a bronze bust that has just recently been unveiled at the Dublin Writers Museum. We had a wonderful centenary of his death in 2012, which brought together politicians and other fans alike. You know, it's really nice to see that Bram is being recognized in his, in his hometown. Of course, he was born in Clontarf. There's a, there's a park now named after him. Artane is where he also grew up, and then in Dublin as well. Trinity College has had some scholarly events there focused on Bram. There's some of the papers, the Stoker papers are there. So it's neat to see Marsh's Library. I was there recently. They recognize a table Bram sat at. They've recognized certain books that he actually checked out, some of the research that he's done. So, you know, a little bit of digging, a little bit of looking around has, has really put the, the, the sort of the magnifying glass on Dublin as a place that, you know, was really inspirational for Bram for his writing of Dracula. And it's, it's, it's right and fitting that he's now being recognized because of it. Dacre and J.D. Barker wrote a prequel to Dracula called Dracul. I really got a taste of Bram himself when I found this lost journal of Bram Stoker's that Paul Murray, the biographer, the Dublin-based biographer, had alluded in his biography that was in the Isle of Wight, one of my cousins actually has in his possession. And that gave me an, you know, the idea of what, was, what Bram was like, what was he thinking of as he was growing up. And so these, these lectures that I give that were based on my research for Dracula, the Undead, and then this lost journal was sort of, let, let's fictionalize this a little bit. You know so little about Bram's life, but when I sort of put pieces together about Bram's life, I thought, well, this is, you know, people are generally interested in it, but boy, it could be a lot of fun to fictionalize it. And so the story that J.D. Barker and I have, uh, have written, it's about Bram Stoker growing up and certain events that obviously have been twisted from the actual truth, but based on reality, what would happen if Bram Stoker wrote Dracula as actually a warning that vampires are real. And how, how could that possibly be true? I think we've made a very compelling case. I think Dublin will be very proud because a lot of the story is based in Clontarf, Artane area, and also in Whitby, where Bram took a wonderful holiday. So there's a lot of real places where Bram went that, that will resonate to, to the reader, and, and hopefully they will like it as much as we enjoyed writing it. Dacre Stoker, great-grandnephew of Bram, talking there. And you heard him pose the question, what if vampires were real? Well, this got me thinking. I've tracked down some real vampires, people who drink blood. A warning, this next item is not for the squeamish. To tell us about this community, John Edgar Browning. I'm John Edgar Browning. I teach writing and communication at the Georgia Institute of Technology. And I also write books and articles on creepy stuff like vampires and horror films and Dracula zombies, etc., etc. John knows everything there is to know about vampires in pop culture, but until 2009, the only area of vampire studies that he hadn't looked at was real vampires. Well, I'll tell you what, when I when I uh, was a, a 
a doctoral student at Louisiana State University. By that point, I had already sort of covered all my bases in terms of venturing into different areas of vampire studies. But the one area that I hadn't tackled yet, simply because it didn't interest me and I I kind of made up my mind already what I was going to think of it. And that was looking into the human vampire or real vampire identity and community because I thought they were going to be wackos. And while I was a grad student, I realized, okay, this is it. This is the time to do it because I'm here in Baton Rouge. I'm an hour north of, of New Orleans. And if I'm going to find these people, I'm going to find them there. So I might as well put everything I have into this and see if if what I think is correct is correct, which which is that these people are wacko. And I went there, and part of what I was going to be doing is not only identifying them and interviewing them if I could, but also figuring out what kinds of books and movies they've seen, because I was already anticipating that as well. And what was strange is that there was very little in terms of books and films they had seen. Um, there was one vampire in particular who was very well read and who I could talk to about, you know, Dracula films and vampire films till the bats come home. But for the rest of them, um, I think they had seen bits and pieces of certain films, but the vampire milieu was just not part of their life. And, and in fact, with the exception of the very nice fangs that some of them wore at certain times and maybe some of the, the gothic clothing some of them would wear sometimes, not all the time, there was very little connection between them and the vampire except adapting the term as sort of a, a way of communicating their identity, the fangs, and then perhaps consuming blood or taking energy. There was very little connection. And I would come to find that this was true across the board. I mean, if we were to look at the vampire community in general, just here in the States, I think very little of the community. I mean, this is totally, I'm totally guessing here, but it couldn't be more than 30, 40% actually are these hardcore enthusiasts for vampire films and Dracula films. The rest of them are just sort of, they're taking very, very few things from that and adapting it to their identity and their life. Otherwise, they're just not it's just not a part of their life. I think they look at it as being the fake version of what they are, or at least, no, I shouldn't say that because they consider themselves something very different from the vampires we see in film. But let me add to this, something else happened, which I think reaffirmed this. When they first started telling me about the first time they fed, and eventually when they adapted the identity of the real vampire, they weren't thinking in terms of vampire when they first started consuming blood or energy. That, that didn't even cross their mind. It was something that happened later on. So in other words, they began consuming blood as a means of, of medicating themselves, helping themselves. And then it wasn't until years later that they adapted the term vampire and so on and so forth. So in other words, they weren't these huge vampire fans and they didn't say, well, maybe I should just start drinking blood. Maybe that would be cool. They started doing it that way. It, it was the complete opposite. They started consuming blood or energy first and then years later thought, well, maybe I should just adapt this term vampire. That's interesting because you would think they might want to be disassociated from the term vampire because of all the pop culture baggage and the public perception of what a vampire is. Right, exactly. And I think in general, they don't mind the connection, but they're not going to go out of their way to make the connection. They more often see the connection when the media treats them or portrays them, you know, on TV. The media will throw in these hokey bats or special sound effects or something. And so the uh, us trying to represent them 
Uh, we often are the ones that apply this stuff, but they do not apply it themselves. I mean, you will find some real vampires who are walking around in opera capes and tuxedos and something gothic. But in general, my experience, especially when I was in Buffalo doing a similar study, there's nothing remotely stereotypically vampiric or gothic about them. So how do people come to realize that they have this need for blood? Well, it, what happens, and this is a, a consistent story that I get across the board, uh, not only in, the, in the, the, the folks that I've interviewed, but also what I've heard from other accounts. And, and this holds true with accounts that I've read from the early 1970s when we first started seeing people identifying themselves to researchers. But generally, just after puberty or so, they begin feeling extraordinarily weak or sluggish. They can eat properly, they can eat healthily, they can take vitamins, they can go to the doctor, they can get shots, but nothing helps them feel like the folks around them. And then eventually, by accident, usually they come in contact with blood and that changes everything. It, it makes them feel proper. It makes them feel like they're, they're not just lethargic and de-energized all the time. Or in the case of psychic vampires, uh, they're not even not even aware of where they're getting this new energy from, but they do know that they have a tendency to like to like to give friends massages or be around certain kinds of emotion or be in certain locales, well, like a club or something, or some kind of gymnasium or something where there are lots of people giving off what they call ambient energy, and then. Obviously, the, the sanguinarians figure out pretty quickly what's helping them, but the psychic vampires, it often takes them a long time because they don't, they don't realize what's happening. They don't realize what kind of you know, ethereal sustenance they're taking in. And that's usually how it starts. Where does the blood that they drink come from? Well, the initial sort of accidental thing, I have read and I've interviewed several stories for for some folks it's uh, you know a friend cuts themselves or something and there's the old old tradition of you know just sucking it off their fingertip or something for them for, you know uh, but for others they get into a fight and they're fighting the person and the person's blood lands on them or lands on their face or something or they have an uncle who is a butcher and he brings home fresh meat a lot and some of this fresh meat has residue blood tainted liquid or something and they decide that they want to drink that and you know almost by nature i don't know they do and they realize it makes them feel much better it makes them feel like they like they feel like an everyday person and they feel energized and they feel like they can go out and enjoy life again and these are people from all walks of life just going about their business, but they just happen to have this thing. That's right. This practice first begins just after puberty. So we're looking at, you know, 13, 14, whatever. Uh, they're, they're generally ordinary kids. And when they get into their adulthood, they, they take on ordinary professions. And I've read uh, of early accounts where you know, school teachers would write in and say, anonymously, of course, but they would write in to say that they're a very good teacher, they're very well respected. But when kids scrape themselves up and they help bandage the kid, and, you know, some of the handkerchiefs or napkins they use to do that, they would, the teacher would use to help them, they would, uh, the teacher would take that handkerchief home or napkin and soak it in water to take out some of the blood to consume or something like that. Uh, that's an otter example from that I read about from years ago. But the professions they go on, go into are pretty ordinary. 
People often think that the best place to look for vampires are going to be at, you know, a gothic nightclub or something. Uh, but more often, you'll find them walking down the street in a suit or, or climbing a telephone pole to repair a phone line or something like that. They truly are among us. That was John Edgar Browning there, and John has written many books on vampires if you'd like to read more. That's it for this one, but we have one more episode left. Bram Stoker invented the archetypal vampire, but in our final episode, we're going to see how Dracula's cousins have grown, transformed, and bitten modern readers and viewers. Fangs is produced by me, Liam Garrity. Our theme music is by the wonderful Spencer Thun. See you next time.